Welcome to a new episode of What Exactly Am I Watching Here, a proud member of the Overthink Podcast Network. I'm your host for now, Jason Helms, and I'm joined by my good bud, Dominic Lang. Say hi, Dom. Hi, Jason. Good to see your smiling face. Aren't we lucky to have air conditioning? So lucky. So lucky. Before we begin, a quick introduction to the show, What Exactly Am I Watching Here is a podcast that features an expert and a novice watching one of the great shows of television history. For now, our show is the cult favorite, Twin Peaks, uh, and we are diving into Twin Peaks The Return. We're on episode 10 today. Uh, so, uh, hello, Johnny. How are you today? Hello, Johnny. How are you today? And Ben, if you could just loop that back like 40 more times. Uh, you know, that, yeah. I think that's the rest of the episode. Yeah, I think we're just going to listen to that forever. We're set. Yep. Uh, no, no, Ben is, of course, our editor, and keep this all in, because um, we're terrible. All right, Dom, how are you today? <laughs> I'm great, but we're in trouble. We're oh, in no. trouble. Yeah, because where we left off, we have Diane, who I thought was going to be one of our stalwarts, one of our heroes, uh, possibly colluding with Doppelkoop. No collusion. No collusion. No Fake collusion. News. Oh, Fake right. News. No Fake collusion. news. No collusion. My mistake. Fixed it. Uh, yep. Boom. We're He's done. been looking. There's no collusion. Okay. Yep. Taken care of. Yes. Uh, so something's going on between them. Uh, Bill Hastings, our favorite high school principal, murderer, adulterer, blogger, uh, knows the major, has apparently traveled to a different dimension and seen the major. Uh, Bobby. Hawk and Frank Truman met with Mrs. Briggs. They received coordinates to a time and a place that Bobby knows. Uh, Dougie or Dale Cooper is still in and out of waking, not quite sure where he's at. Uh, Lots of stuff happening. This episode, it opens with a couple of scenes that like, frankly really bothered me. Yeah. Um, So, and then like in, quick succession, basically three scenes of abuse. Yep. And after the episode, really trying to process and take a step back, take a step back and question like why those scenes or why like one after the other, because the episodes so far have not usually followed a this, then that, like, this scene causes this scene causes this scene. Right. So you can really, a lot of scenes you can kind of put in different order. Yeah. So a, I assume intention from Lynch. Then if I assume intention, then I have to ask the question, well, why like these three scenes right out of the gate for part 10. So the scenes first, there's Richard Horn, my, This just like a slithering piece of evil comes to the home of Miriam Sullivan, who saw him run over a kid in part six. So he beats her to near death or leaves her to die. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if it's meant to. It seems like she's dead. I don't know if she's meant to like possibly be living, but it looks like she's dead. She is breathing. Oh, when the the camera zooms out. But the uh, the gas has been left on and there's a candle burning. Yeah. So we, if she's going to get out of there, she's got to hurry up. Yeah. Uh, so there's that scene. Uh, he beats her because she tells him that she sent a letter to the Twin Peaks PD detailing all of what he's done 
and all of what she saw. So Richard calls Chad because it figures that Chad, that asshole, is working with Richard and Chad needs to intercept the letter. So fucking Chad. Fucking Chad. Uh, it's okay. You have tenure. So there you yeah. go. Yeah. Uh, cut to Harry Dean Stanton playing like the sweetest version of Red River Valley. Mm. And that is broken up by Steve, who is swinging and abusing uh, Becky in the trailer across from him. Fucking Steve. You know what? Just this whole. Yeah. Fucking Steve. And so there's that. And then you go to, I mean, maybe I guess you could call it a funny scene. I didn't find, by this point, I didn't find it funny whatsoever. Right. Uh, you have uh, Rodney Mitchum, one of the Mitchum brothers in Vegas. He's working on something. And one of the girls, Candy, is tracking a fly. She swings, hits him in the face. Candy becomes hysterical. Uh, is terrified and starts weeping. And so like that to me signaled that, that Kenny is in some sort of like relationship where she's, she's the dominated one. Like she doesn't have power in this relationship. Yes. And it just, so like three successive scenes of women in relationships where they don't have power or agency. Yes. And I, th- I think with candy, it's, um, it's even more important that you know that with candy because mm. most of the candy scenes are, you know, played for, for humor and it's attempting to evoke this, um, fifties, sixties, nostalgia, Vegas vibe, of yeah. showgirls and candy, Sandy and Mandy. Thanks for writing down their names in the notes. There mm-hmm. are the girlfriends of, uh, the Mitchum brothers. And that is enough to tell you that something is off. Yeah. Um, that there's a sense of, you know, the, I hesitated to say girlfriends because there's a real sense of ownership that they are their employers. And mm-hmm. yet you also get the feeling that there's a uh, sexual relationship. Um, and I would venture to guess that their names are not originally Candy, Sandy and Mandy, that right. they have been that, that they're their shtick they're doing when they're sitting on against the wall and just staring off into space is um, not just practiced, but is the way they've been told to act mm. the way they've been treated. Just stand over there and wait, stand over there and stare off in the space. Yeah. Um, you are a prop in my life. You know, this, this is not candy fighting back, but it's a rare moment where she, she does have a moment of autonomy, autonomy, mm. even if it's accidental, right? Um, she is his, uh, his furniture, his prop, and your furniture doesn't usually hit you in the face. True. And so this is a moment where she in error hits him. And not to strike back against her abuser, yet it alerts us to the entire abusive relationship. Yeah. And, and it smacks us in the face and awakens us to that. Yeah. And for me, it ties to something that the log lady, Catherine, tells Hawk at the end uh, when she says the glow is dying. It really does feel like these three scenes, as well as a later attack by Richard, it shows how out of control this world is. Yeah. It feels like, like there is no veneer anymore. So the original run of twin peaks dealt a lot with a veneer of goodness of gentleness. And then we were kind of slowly unearthing things like this just feels like naked cruelty. Yeah. 
and and abuse, you know. Yeah, and uh, it it casts into a different light the interactions that the Mission Brothers have later in the episode with telling Candy to go get uh, Sinclair, yeah. and um, when I can never keep the Mission Brothers straight, uh, when uh, one of them is mad and you know is contemplating firing her, the other says um, she's got no no place else to go. Yeah, and that's even. Even more disturbing is the sense in which they viewed themselves as providing charity for her. Mm. View themselves as the uh, everybody sees themselves as the good guy. It's just really disturbing to see these uh, misogynistic mob bosses uh, viewing themselves as the good guys. Yeah, and I, and I think this show in some ways treats them as good guys. Um, I'm never sure what to do about that with with David Lynch. Uh, mm-hmm. To what extent does he want us? He certainly is going to allow us to view them as good guys, but does he want us to? I'm not sure. Yeah. Through part 10, I, I guess I don't have too much of, of an opinion on the Mitchum brothers, only because they are tangentially connected, but I haven't seen them make explicit inroads. They're starting to, you know, like they're coming closer to Dougie. They're making moves toward that. Right now, I just, I don't see them as good people. I don't see them as like, like good guys. Um, no, I'm I'm with you. It's just I I feel like the show is is kind of treating them always in goofy scenes, always kind of just light humor. It's it we don't see them as the bad guys. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, and so this this next thing, like because it follows those three opening scenes, the stuff with Janie E and Cooper. I don't know how I should feel about it. Yeah, and here's one thought. Okay. Which is, um, maybe there's no should, right? In terms of how, how you should feel. Yeah. Um, and so let's, let's just be very accepting. This is, um, Lynch is very into meditation. One of the principal things you do in meditation is you stop judging the thoughts that enter your head. Hmm. You just notice that they're there. You say, oh, I'm distracted today. Oh, this happened. And so he's put up, some of the difficult stuff I think he puts in his TV shows is just to have us wrestle with what should I do with that? Hmm. Uh, and to try to get to the realization that, oh, that's not, that's not necessarily my responsibility to figure out which of my reactions are right and wrong. To try to understand my reactions is good. Yeah. But to try to say, you know, ah, this spontaneous reaction on my part, this was bad. Shame mm-hmm. on me. Or this was good. I'm a good person. Um, I, I don't think he wants us to be able to do that. So the Janie E scenes, uh, she goes to the, um, his checkup. Uh, with him, uh, mm-hmm. notices he's lost some weight, notices, in fact, that he's quite attractive, and later that evening seduces him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's – seduces is is a tough way to put it because he doesn't seem aware of what's happening. Yeah. Uh, but for her, it's very much a seduction. I mean she's flirty. She's giggly. She says, I find you attractive. Do you find me attractive? Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to them in bed together. But again, there's really very little sense of Dougie's agency other than – at the very least, we do get the the uh, suggestion that Dougie is enjoying himself, arms flapping about uh, as he does. Yeah, uh, and the scene is played for for laughs. Again, there's there's a lot of goofiness to it. Um, it's a really odd scene, not one I can compare to a lot else that's in cinema. And yeah. then when they cuddle at the end, uh, my own reaction was that it was very sweet, which is is odd again because this is not Dougie. Right. This and and there's a sense in which you know this can't last. That's what I wonder is that. If and when Coop wakes up, like, is he going to remember any of this? And what will she think? If she's there for the wake up, will she be like, oh, that was not Dougie? Yeah. Oh, I cheated on my husband. 
I seduced an unconscious stranger. Mm-hmm. You know, I, all of those feelings are not being dealt with in the show. Yeah. And maybe part of the message is these fleeting moments of connection and love. Sometimes you may not want to dig too deep and just allow yourself to have a fleeting connection of love, not necessarily knowing what else is there. Um, now, that's not to condone what in this episode I, I think could be covered as sexual assault, mm-hmm. uh, but more thinking about the afterglow and that connection between them there. Yeah. There's a sense in which I, I think a, a larger message might be about just enjoying the, the moments that we do have uh, yeah. and not questioning too much. Again, I'm pretty troubled by that because I do think that JDE sexually assaulted Coop. Mm. Um, he had no choice in this matter. Uh, it might be due to a series of uh, misunderstandings, but still, that's about what happened. Right. No, like what you said about the connection impulse, it makes sense that Janie E would want connection. Yeah. I mean, it seems like very carnal, instinctual, just like she sees something that she's attracted to and wants it. Yeah. That like, again, separate from condoning, it's understandable to track her thought process and to see like how she acts. And again, I I think just coming after what preceded it, my head was already in a different place. And so for this Mm -hmm. scene to happen, um, it made me question what's going to happen with them as a couple for the first time, like Mm -hmm. up until now I saw them as separate people and now I see their fates as more intertwined. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's important. Are you familiar with the uh, film or book being there? I am vaguely familiar with it. So the, the basic plot of each is that uh, there is a, and this is a book by uh, Jersey Kaczynski, is that there is a developmentally uh, disabled man named Chauncey uh, Gardner. Actually, his name is Chance uh, the Gardener. But um, he uh, is taking care of his whole life, and then his benefactor dies, and he uh, just kind of wanders uh, out into the streets. Um, He was supposed to inherit all of his benefactor's money. Somebody was supposed to be taking care of him. Uh, He's just been sitting there watching television for his whole life, but he does not understand what's happening, and so he does not get the money and wanders out of the lawyer's office into the world. And there he um, he meets someone, says, who are you? And he says, uh, Chance the Gardener. And she hears Chauncey Gardner. And so she introduces him to everyone as Chauncey Gardner, and she's a very well-to-do woman. And he ends up becoming a political pundit just by saying really, really stupid, obvious things that no one else is willing to say uh, and often repeating things. Uh, he ends up having a rich voyeuristic sex life because he doesn't know anything about sex and when someone invites him into her bed, he says, I like to watch. And he's talking about how he's not real good with like uh, people stuff. He gets good mm. with TV. Mm. And so uh, that sends him on a, another whole escapade. Uh, and in the film, and I can't remember how the book ends. Uh, it's been a bit. But in the film, he ends by uh, walking on water. At the very end, he just walks off into the distance. And he just walks onto a lake and keeps walking. With, I think, somewhat of the idea being that um, you know, we thought that this was all in people's minds, but maybe there's some truth to it because the, the idea is that it's been just people reflecting back to themselves, their own desires. Mm. Um, and so, but, oh, maybe there is some 
some real truth out there somewhere, and he's discovered it. And the, the book does not end that way. I can't remember how it ends. But if you've watched Arrested Development, uh, the entire Mr. F subplot yes. is that. And that, in fact, ends with her walking on water. Remember, she has the whole thing about, you know, well, why don't you just walk there? Yeah. Uh, why don't you just walk across the ocean? Yeah. Uh, and then she ends by walking across the pool. Um, so uh, another situation where somebody who is um, mentally disabled is viewed as smart uh, because of some other attribute. So some of this is happening to Dougie. And I think the, the references are somewhat explicit, um, especially in the insurance company stuff. And then yeah. these uh, interactions with Janie E. Yeah. That um, his, he's the strong, silent type, right? But it's not because he's thinking about anything. It's because he's just not there. He's, he's, he's not conscious yet. There's something, something else happening. And yet people seem to interpret what he's saying as, as meaningful. Which, again, I think reflects back on the, the whole scene we had in Fire Walk With Me, um, Cousin Lil, right? What are we supposed to interpret from that? Uh, and they give us an interpretation, which is just stupid. Yeah. And over the top, but intentionally so. And it makes us want to interpret the rest of the show that way. And I think Lynch is really pointing at, if there's a commentary happening in Dougie, it's whatever, whatever you're interpreting out of Twin Peaks, that's coming from you, not from me. I'm just hmm. giving you a place to create interpretations. And that's really clear in episode eight, eight, episode eight, which we just finished. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think there's there's a, a web of connections here uh, to those those other media. Very true. Good point there. So, speaking of connection, a little bit of sweetness, and then something strange. The sweetness, Albert and Constance have what appears to be a very sweet and very humorous uh, or joking dinner. And I, I like this couple, Jason, I'm, I'm going to say. Yes. Yeah. They're, my, they're my new, I, I'm shipping uh, Albert and Constance. I, I think it's happening. I don't think you have to yeah. even have to ship. It's it's there, man. Well, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm on board. So yes. there you go. Yes. Uh, so we there's that. But part 10 seemed to be like there's the scenes, the scenes at the top. And then, you know, kind of the middle section toward the end. Cole is in his room sketching or doodling, and I don't know what, knocking the door. A reindeer dog. What oh, do you mean oh, you right. don't know what? It was, it was some kind of reindeer dog. Sorry. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously a reindeer dog. Uh, so he puts down the reindeer dog drawing, opens the door, and sees a vision of Laura Palmer mm. screaming, and Sarah Palmer's voice screaming Laura. Yes. And then... That image fades away. Albert's standing there, who it doesn't seem like he's had the same vision as Cole. It just seems like he's there. So I'm just going to, it seems like only Cole saw that. Right. Uh, Albert has proof of Diane's betrayal, shows Gordon. As he's showing Gordon, Agent Preston comes in and shows them both that Evil Coop was in the glass box with another being at some point. And so like all that happened within like two minutes, there was, you know, like the return has had these long sequences of Cooper doodling on insurance forms of the Fusco <laughs> brothers of, uh, the roadhouse being cleaned. Goodness that, gracious. Oh, wow. Holy Just smokes forever. Oh is my it, God. Is it five minutes of sweeping. I mean, it's amazing. Yes. So there's those scenes and then there are these scenes where, like, in two minutes, 
all of this stuff happens. All of these connections are being made. And, you know, plot-wise or movement-wise felt like, okay, now, like, some sort of reckoning is going to happen with all this information. Like, they're getting closer and closer to putting all of these pieces together. Yeah. I still have no idea what the ultimate, like, end game of this thing is. If there is an end game, it feels like the log lady is pointing toward that. She tells Hawk that Laura is the one. Mm-hmm. Laura is the one to what? For what? Why? We're not told. We got, we got some suggestions in episode eight. How do you mean? Well, she's the, the answer to Bob. Oh. Bob is born into the world, and then Laura is also born into the world as some kind of answer to him. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's, that does not help you know, Hawk, necessarily, hearing Laura is the one. Because all he would be able to think of, I would think, is just like, uh, oh, we've got to solve her murder. There, there's something that we're missing there. We've got to go back to that case. Yeah. But uh, in the larger Twin Peaks mythos, I think it's about Laura being the the one true, good, beautiful thing in the world. Yeah. Uh, even though she's been sullied by weird uh, frog locust monsters. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, no, I mean, but if, it feels so like, like Hawk would be open to the notion of Laura as a representation of good or like an yes. emissary of good. Yes. And if you, if you told Hawk that like, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm down for that. Yep. So it's, I'm glad that the log lady is in a sense, guiding Hawk on this, on this journey uh, and imploring him. It seems though, like, like she is, she is keenly aware that time is running out. On something. And part of that does feel like an intrusion of real life. Uh, The actor, Catherine Coulson, was dying at the time. And so that that feeling is in her scenes. Like there's there's a limited amount of time remaining. And it feels like that is now starting to creep in further into the show itself. I'm with you there. And as we've covered before, uh, she passed away before. Twin Peaks The Return uh, would air. Mm. Uh, and she knew that she was uh, she did not have long. Um, Harry Dean Stanton, another uh, person from this episode, who also passed mm. away before the show would air. Uh, Albert, another one. It's just, yeah, a lot of people in this show that you, you can't help but think that this is uh, a requiem for them. Yeah. Alright, uh, so, so then we get out of here uh, on the final song, uh, No Stars. Any thoughts on that? I mean, it from it connects in the sense of which when she says the glow is dying, it connects in the sense of like people use stars as guides, uh, mm-hmm. using stars in you know in olden times uh, of sailing, and you would use those as guides uh, as as orientation. And if you're singing a song that's called "No Stars," uh, it feels very much like a loss of orientation or a loss of place uh, mm-hmm. and a loss of knowing where you are and where to go. Yeah. Uh, now, did you notice who wrote this song? No, I didn't. David Lynch. What? Yep. Come on. A, a man of many talents. David. Uh, so, so that may cause you to, to run back to that song, spend a little bit more time with it. Wow. Uh, Cause it definitely feels like just a, a, a very sweet, uh, kind of song about love and loss. Um, yeah. But reading again, knowing that Lynch wrote it, uh, that I believe this was its debut. 
it was uh it might have some more meaning there yeah um, yeah because it was it was honestly such a sweet sweeter song that i didn't bother to look in the sense of like oh because lynch's stuff is usually far edgier uh than uh, that well let me let me give you some lyrics to uh hang on to we got the the no stars part but mm-hmm. um my dream is to go to that place you know the one where it all began on a starry night mm. so knowing that do you have any any thoughts about what that might mean for the show it makes me think of two things part eight in the sense of the the woodsman speaking at night and the the frog moth monster climbing into the girl's mouth. Uh, it also makes you think of Annie being taken into the Black Lodge by Wyndham Earl mm. under cover of night. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that is the the last time that we saw Dale Cooper. Dale Cooper went into the Black Lodge and what came out was not Dale Cooper. Yep. The good Coop is in the lodge. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, I think with that, we uh, we can get out of here. Uh, so thanks again for joining us on What Exactly Am I Watching Here? For next time, we're going to be working through Twin Peaks The Return, part 11. Part 11. Woo! 11. You can get a hold of us on Twitter, where our handle is at OverthinkPod. Find more at OverthinkPod.com. I'm on Twitter as at Helm Street. And uh, Dom, where can the people find you? They can find me on Twitter, Dominic underscore Lang, and Instagram, Dominic Lang. Till next time, you have an enemy. His name is Douglas Jones. Mm-hmm.